Monday, 2007, September 24th. Today is Lecture 4, Measuring the Earth. Well, last time on Friday, I gave a lecture on constellations. And to tell you the truth, constellations is one of those topics that's kind of cool, but you don't know where it's going to fit. So today we're going to really start in the discovery of what do we know about the sky? What do we know about the Earth? And we're going to start out at home. Oops, wrong button. We're going to start out by asking a very basic question, by how do we go about measuring the Earth? So the key ideas that I want to cover today are as follows. The first is I want to just review some ancient ideas about the Earth, because they are somewhat informative about this whole process of how we begin to become conscious of the physical size of the Earth. And then go on to the concept of a spherical Earth, which actually began as an appeal to perfect symmetry by the Greeks in the 5th century BC, but actually was demonstrated physically by Aristotle in the 4th century. And we'll see what that's about and how you can actually see, with no instruments, no long-range travel, just standing still and paying attention, that you can actually see that the Earth and prove that the Earth is a sphere. You can demonstrate that it's the shape it has to have. And finally, once you've established the shape of the Earth, how do we go about measuring its circumference? How do you pull that trick off? We're going to see two such measurements from antiquity that are greatly influential, that of Eratosthenes of Cyrene in the 3rd century BC and that of Claudius Ptolemy in the 1st century AD. So we're going to introduce the idea of what is the size and shape of the Earth and how do we measure it. Now, The most common theme we see all throughout ancient literature and ancient legends and certainly in what I would call preliterate peoples around the world is the idea that the world is flat. Sometimes it's flat, surrounded by a world ocean, and surmounted by a hemispherical sky. This is not to mention, say this in a way, to make fun of people for having this view, because that, in fact, is how the world actually looks to us if we stand on a relatively high place in one spot and look around us. Go to the highest building in Columbus, you know, it's pretty flat around here, and look around you. You see the land stretching out in all directions, pretty much equidistant away from you, and that land would run out when you reach the sea in most places, or run into Lake Erie in our case. And the sky really does appear to be a hemispherical dome just out of our reach, above our heads. Now part of this is a bit of an illusion of perspective because we happen to be very small and the earth and sky are very, very big. But it is the natural view you would come to for the earth if you stayed in one place and just made a single instantaneous observation about the world. And we see this particular way of viewing the world all over the place through history. For example, Homeric Greece, which is getting back in a kind of 8th, 9th century BC, that particular literature views the world as a completely flat disk surrounded by a world ocean. There's a grand dome of the sky being held up by the god Atlas. Well, we don't have to stick to Greek mythology. The Inca of, so of, southern, of Peru and South America called their nation not Peru. In fact, we really don't know where the word Peru comes from at all. They called themselves Tawantinsuyu, which in their language means the four quarters of the earth. They actually saw the earth as somewhat flat, a somewhat surprising result given that their, their empire stretched over many degrees of latitude, and they divided their, their empire, which was kind of long and thin, into four quarters, which mimicked the fourfold division of the sky by the Milky Way, galaxy as it courses through the course of the year. And they set up their administrative structure on the ground to reflect what they saw in the heavens. 
The ancient Egyptians also saw the earth as flat. The ancient Egyptians did not really go all that far from their own homelands. They didn't really need to. They saw the sky as kind of metaphorically as a tent canopy that was stretched out between the mountains that lived at the four corners of the earth. This theme, the four corners of the earth, is an extremely common one that appears throughout history. Here's a modern reconstruction of the world according to Homer. They certainly knew about the Mediterranean Sea. You can see the Italy and Greece in here, the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Maybe you got as far as the Indus River and just dipping down the Nile and what we now call the Arabian Gulf, but really stopped from probing any further south by the burning stands of the Sahara. And in Northern Europe, not very far did they get into Northern Europe. You don't even see Britain or Ireland up here on the mountains. In fact, the idea of Spain doesn't really fit. And of course, the Northern limits were simply as far as travelers had gotten and actually survived to return to tell the tale, which was not very far in the 8th and 9th centuries BC. This is a Hindu picture of the, uh, of the world. It comes from the Vedas. It's another way of looking at the earth as a flattened disk surrounded by an immense ocean. At the center of that earth is the giant Mount Meru, which holds up the entire sky, here shown fancifully as a cobra surmounting the sky. And then the earth, of course, is known to move and shudder as there are earthquakes in the, Him in the Himalayan mountain areas. And so they saw the earth as being held up on its four corners by four elephants right, with the earth riding on its back. And then those elephants themselves were on the back of a gigantic turtle, which swam in an infinite sea. Now, do people really think the world looks this way? Probably not. After all, the world looks like pretty much as it is. So what we're really seeing here is a lot of the use of myth and metaphor. The earth is very big. We're very small. It's very hard to understand the natural world, and so people have made up legends and metaphors to try to make the world understandable to us. Some of those myths and metaphors are informed by a, by a cultural or even a personal aesthetic that we can only guess at, at the remove either of just cultural remove or at a remove of many millennia of time. So we see these as people struggling to understand the world around them. And they did so by bringing in their own views of things. But there's a different way of viewing the world that you can begin to come to and that we saw coming in over time, particularly in this marvelous efflorescence of knowledge that occurred in classical Greece around the 5th century BC. There, certainly, they would apply myth and metaphor to their world, but they did something else which was somewhat unique to other peoples. They began to not only impose their ideas of what our view looks like upon the world, how the world ought to be, but also began to turn that question around and say, how is the world as it is, and how does that inform my views of it? And it was that reversal of that thought that really is a tremendous intellectual change in mankind. Now, the ancient Greeks really stood out for a number of reasons, but one of them is that they were intoxicated by geometry. Now, everybody knew geometry up to this point. The Babylonians used geometry. The Egyptians almost most certainly used a very sophisticated geometry. But to those peoples, as near as we can tell, there were abstract uses of geometry, but it was largely seen as an application. It was applied to building buildings, laying out ground, and so forth. It was really the Greeks who began to look at geometry and see that underlying all the apparent chaos of the world was this wonderful orderly system of rules that could describe most geometric shapes. And they found those geometric shapes everywhere in the world. And they really came to this realization that, hey, maybe what we're seeing is we're getting to read deeply into the book of how the world was put together. Maybe geometry is part of the language of the universe, the language of the cosmos, the everything that the Greeks looked at. 
If you look at geometry, there is one perfect solid in geometry, and it's the sphere. Now, I will confess that this is a somewhat imperfect sphere. It's an inflatable sphere, just for size. But a sphere is that geometric solid in which I pick a single point in space, and I draw out the surface that represents all points that are equal distant from that one central reference point. And no matter which direction I look at that sphere, it always looks the same. There are no faces to a sphere. There is no axis of symmetry to a sphere. It is one and whole and perfect, the most perfect geometric solid you can imagine. And the Greeks were so jazzed by this, they began to think that maybe this perfection in the sphere would find its reflection in some perfection in the cosmos. And it became fairly natural to begin to apply that to the shape of the Earth itself. In about 500 BC, Pythagoras, that same Pythagoras, the philosopher who gave us, for example, the Pythagorean theorem, and an entire school whose philosophy in many ways was devoted to numbers and harmony and geometry, proposed that the Earth must be in a sphere, but as near as we can tell, he did so on purely aesthetic grounds. The Earth is immense. The Earth is the center of the universe. The Earth must have underlying it geometric perfection. And what is the most perfect geometric solid? The sphere. So without any other knowledge that we are aware of, Pythagoras declared that the Earth must be a sphere. And he did so on largely aesthetic grounds because of this conception of geometric per perfection. By 400 BC, Plato, in his, in his um, dialogue, The Phaedra, espoused a spherical Earth as well. And again, it was an appeal to symmetry. It was an appeal to harmony. It was an appeal to geometric perfection. But to all of our knowledge, Plato had no physical basis upon which to say for sure that the Earth was a sphere. So here again, we see the imposition of myth and metaphor. One has a cultural or an aesthetic conception of what constitutes perfection in the world, and you simply impose that upon the world because that's how it ought to be. But what we really like to know is, can I prove it? Can I turn the question around and say, is the Earth indeed a sphere? Well, for that, we have to now go forward into the 4th century BC to one of the greatest philosophers of antiquity, Aristotle. Aristotle proposed a spherical Earth on geometric ground. He shared this general aesthetic that he inherited from Plato and Pythagoras and all those who came before him, but Aristotle went one step further. Aristotle backed up that assertion by citing physical evidence to demonstrate that the Earth was indeed a sphere. Now, we know from his, um, from his writings that have survived that he put forward three basic pieces of evidence. They are that people living in the southern portions of the world, those portions visited by Greek trade, see the southern constellations appear higher above their local horizon than persons living in the north. So as you moved from north to south, you saw a different part of the sky, as if you were standing on the surface of a spherical solid. The second proof is the most dramatic of these. If you observe a lunar eclipse, and the next visible lunar eclipse from Columbus will be next March, if you watch it through the many hours of that total eclipse of the moon, you actually can see that the shadow of the Earth that the moon is passing behind has a beautiful curve to it. It's actually just so just stone obvious. We wonder why anyone didn't notice this before or at least write it down. And finally, third, he made an interesting argument. This is not an observation now. It's rather a conception about how Aristotle viewed the world coming together physically. He began to ask this question, how do you make the world? And if he assumed that the earth was made of that element, earth, the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, 
of that, the, the heaviest element was the earth. All earth settles down towards the middle. You pile anything up, it settles down into an ultimate state of rest. So Aristotle said, what if you assemble all the matter that makes up the earth from individual small pieces? How will it form itself under this impression to rest, has come to rest at the center of the universe? And he said that if you took that matter and allowed it to settle naturally into the vast bulk of the earth, that it should naturally settle itself into a spherical shape. It should assume the perfect geometric shape of the world. It's an interesting conception. It's halfway between coming up with a physical explanation for why it should be spherical and applying the aesthetic of a sphere as the most perfect ideal of a geometric solid. So Aristotle has got one foot in the ancient world of myth and metaphor and one foot becoming into the world of natural philosophy. Well, let's look at at least the first, this one we can't say too much about. It's amazingly prescient. In fact, if you did take matter coalescing under its own self-gravity, it will naturally, in fact, form itself into a sphere. But Aristotle knew nothing about gravity. So here's a sketch. This is very hard to show in photographs. Take the constellation of Scorpius, a very distinctive constellation in the southern sky. It's down towards the southern horizon in midsummer. If you were in Athens, Greece, at a latitude 38 degrees north, you would see that Scorpius barely gets its own length above the ground here. So here's the horizon looking due south in the middle of summer, and here's Scorpius, the hook of the tail, and moving up towards the claws of Scorpius. It's a very distinctive constellation. If, on the other hand, you traveled down to the first cataracts of the Nile, to a town down there called Syene, which is at latitude 24 degrees north in modern terminology, you would, in fact, see the constellation of Scorpius much higher in the sky. And you would begin to see other stars. For example, this small triangle of stars here that is completely always below your horizon as viewed from the position of Athens. So that you could see a different part of the sky to Aristotle, that was you were standing on a spherical surface. If you start out here north in Athens, up here, I'm going to hold the Earth at an angle, and you march south, you see a different part of the sky appear to you as you move south, whereas at your northern horizon, you see stars fall below your horizon because I can't view through the north anymore. So it's an observation that requires you travel a significantly large distance that the constellations move in the sky about their entire size. So you need to have a fairly dramatic demonstration of this. Here's a multiple exposure photograph of an eclipse, of, total eclipse of the moon where the moon is passing into the shadow of the earth. And this shows very dramatically the curved shadow of the earth here appearing as the moon hides behind it. Again, this is something which is actually very, very obvious and easy to observe, but you have to be very observant and watch it. And of course, the modern miracle of multi-exposure photography lays this all out for us in one instantaneous dramatic way. This is an extremely dramatic demonstration of the sphericity of the Earth. A disk would not cause this. If the Earth was a disk, it would always have to be just contrived to just always hit things. So it was always seeing things face on. But a sphere, you never have to worry about that because a sphere always projects to a circular cross-section no matter which direction you look from it. So you don't see sometimes a solar eclipse just being a little bit of a bite out of the moon. I'm sorry, a lunar eclipse, just a bite out of the moon. A lunar eclipse is always passing completely immersed into shadow, the shadow behind a solid sphere. These demonstrations were extremely compelling. We can see in the literature that survives to us, even up into the Middle Ages, certainly through the classical era, 
Aristotle's demonstrations were so compelling and so authoritative that the whole discussion of a flat earth simply vanishes from the historical record in the 4th century BC. And all the way up through the fall of Rome, a spherical earth was simply an assumption of all educated people. It was a manifest fact of the observed world. In fact, Aristotle went one step further and said that if you look at the shapes of the phases of the moon, which we'll be discussing at the end of the week, you could also demonstrate that the moon is itself a sphere. So therefore, if the earth is a sphere and the moon is a sphere, then to Aristotle it stood by extension that a sphere is the fundamental geometry of the universe, the planets are spheres, the sun is a sphere. So we use that to say that, this per, that noting this geometric perfection we were reading something of the book of the universe. We were learning something about the laws that govern why the universe, why the cosmos are the way they are. This, is, this seems like a simple thing to us today, but remember, no one really had this concept before or was able to demonstrate it with such forcefulness before. And it's a very important idea because it starts people thinking that the universe and all of its tremendous phenomena are number one, they are understandable, and two, that the laws that govern the universe can be expressed in mathematical or geometric language. And that that geometric language, if we learn the laws of geometry, we are in effect learning the laws of the cosmos. It's a very powerful concept. Now, having established its shape, how do we measure how big the Earth is? How big is the Earth? This is a challenge. It's a challenge because the Earth is vastly larger than any human being can traverse by themselves, even with appropriate technologies. It's hard to do in the 21st century AD, much less in the 3rd or 4th century BC. And it's a generic problem of measurement that we're going to run into all over the world, not only in geography, but in the solar system, and in all the study of astronomy. How do you measure distances or measure the sizes of objects that are vastly larger than you are or your, even your measuring machines, your measuring engines? How, for example, do I measure the height of a mountain that's too high to climb? How do I measure the Earth, which is too big for me to just trail a string out behind me with a meter stick and just start counting up and walking? Eventually, I walk off the end of the land and the ocean, and that ends my measurement right there. Well, the answer to that challenge, the solution to the problem, is you apply the rules of geometry. And this, again, is one of the Greeks' big contributions to geometry, is they showed that all geometric figures that look alike are governed by the same rules independent of their size. The geometric rules that govern a sphere that I can pick up in the room are simply scaled up to that of the Earth. And so I can use the same geometric principles I work out on the small scale, and they simply scale up to the large scale. So I learn the rules of geometry for spheres. I take it from the observations that the Earth is a sphere, and I ask, what geometric data can I collect that will allow me to measure the size of the sphere of the Earth? So therein lies the problem. How do I measure the size of the sphere of the Earth? How do I measure the Earth's circumference without ever leaving home or only traveling a little bit? Well, the first person we know of who did this with any certainty in the historical record, and again here I have to be somewhat careful, the historical record is very, very spotty. A great deal was lost when the ancient world fell around 400 AD. Imagine almost all the literature that you know of, like Shakespeare, completely wiped out except for maybe one or two of the obscure plays and fragments of things called Hamlet, and maybe an article of someone describing having gone to a performance of Hamlet and loving it but the play itself is gone, vanished from the record. Literally thousands of books, 
tremendous amounts of knowledge vanish with the fall of the Roman Empire. But a few things have managed to survive to us. One of those is Eratosthenes of Cyrene's measurement of the size of the Earth. It only survives to us in a second or maybe even third-hand account by the man, man by the name of Cleomedes, who probably lived somewhere between the 1st and 3rd centuries A.D., and that tells you how tough the line of transmission was when we can't even tell you which century the guy whose second-hand story this is actually lived. But on to the story. Some things of Eratosthenes have survived. He was born in Cyrene, which is now modern Shahat, Libya, up on the, up the Mediterranean coast of modern Libya in the year 276 B.C. He was a man of the 3rd century B.C., and he was the second librarian of Alexandria. Well, Alexandria on the northern delta of the Nile was the center of learning for the Mediterranean world up through, the, up through Roman times. The great library of Alexandria was the greatest repository of knowledge in the world, probably even the greatest in history when you consider what the population was at the time. And Eratosthenes, if you will, was the second librarian, the second head of that. It was a combination library, museum, and university. It was all things mixed together. It doesn't exactly like a modern library. It's not like a checkout system. It's not like a modern university. But in it, you can see the echoes of the future. Now, when Eratosthenes, as librarian of Alexandria, of course, spoke with many of the travelers, Alexandria was the great port between the Mediterranean world and the vast reaches of the Nile River. And so all traffic from up the Nile passed through Eratosthenes. Alexandria on their way into the Mediterranean world, and Eratosthenes no doubt had contact with all of these. If anyone who knew anyone talked to Eratosthenes. What he heard was a series of travelers' tales. One of them concerned the town of Syene, which was the last place that you could go on the Nile before you hit the first of the great falls, the great cataracts of the Nile, heading further south into the depths of Africa. This is actually the modern city of Aswan. What he heard was on the day of the summer solstice in June, the sun was straight over, stood straight overhead in the sky at noon, and then it cast no shadows upon the ground at that instance of noon. So if you took a vertical stick and slammed it into the ground at noon on the, in modern calendar, 21st of June in Syene, Egypt, the sun would shine straight down on the top of that post and no shadow would be cast at the exact instant of noon. Of course, before and after, the sun is moving, so you get a shadow, but at that exact instance of noon, the sun is exactly at the zenith. Now, Eratosthenes was an astronomer as well as a scholar of many kinds, and he knew what was going on in, in Alexandria on the day of the summer solstice, and almost certainly the summer solstice on the, at noon in Alexandria, shadows were cast. The sun was slightly south of overhead, and in fact, if you face south, the sun would be in your face, and you would cast a shadow towards the north behind you at noon. It was that principle in which the stick was tied down to a gigantic sundial that people used to tell time. And certainly there was no day, there was no instance in Alexandria when the sundials failed to work. This provided Eratosthenes with his essential clue that he needed to measure the size of the Earth. So let's just review where we are geographically. This is a reconstruction from the 19th century of Eratosthenes' world of 220 BC. Now we add the island of Britain and Ireland and maybe Thule here, God knows what that is. The Celts, the Scythians, India was actually reached, the island of Sri Lanka. This is all after Alexander the Great, so the world is greatly expanded. There's now the Persian Gulf that was not on that Homeric map. Alexandria is up here in the north, at the, at the Nile Delta. Syene is down here at the first cataracts. 
This line here represents a line known as the Tropic of Cancer. It is the line upon which the sun will stand directly overhead at noon on the summer solstice. Well, if we now take a much more modern view of this, this is courtesy of Google Earth. Here is the Tropic of Cancer, Alexandria, Alexandria, up here on the Nile Delta. I've used as the center of there, the approximate location of the ancient library. And down here is Syene, Egypt, which was primarily on Elephantine Island, down here at modern Aswan. They are, in fact, almost exactly north-south of each other. Not quite. Actually, it turns out Syene is a bit to the east, and Syene is, in fact, not exactly on the Tropic of Cancer. But this is not a very difficult observation. This is a detail, it turns out, does not obviate this measurement, as we'll see. Well, let's cut a section through the Earth, running from Alexandria to Syene, and the Earth in cross-section will look like is a sphere, with is a circle. Here's the center of the Earth. Here's a post set vertically upon the ground at the latitude of Alexandria, and a similar post set vertically upon the ground at Syene. Because we are moving down the curve of the Earth, what my notion is of up or down depends upon where I am on that surface. And my notion of straight up and down in Syene is different than my notion of straight up and down in Alexandria as I move along the curve of the Earth. The sun might as well be so far away that the rays of the sun fall down as parallel rays. They cover the entire daylight side of the Earth. At Syene, those rays come straight down and hit the top of the post and cast no shadow. But at Alexandria, which is a little bit further north, you've moved up the curve of the Earth a bit, and in fact, the sun is a little bit south of overhead, and it shines, just nicks the top of the post, and casts a little short shadow. How much of a shadow? Well, I can measure that because my notion of straight up and down actually has a formal definition. It's that post which, if I could extend it as far as I wanted to, would eventually intersect with the center of the Earth. So I extend those posts all the way to the center of the Earth, and I ask, what is the angle between the sun and straight overhead at Alexandria? Ah, but Euclid's rules of geometry tell me if I have two parallel lines cut by a third line, the inside angles are the same. So Eratosthenes knew his geometry and knew if the sun made an angle of 7 and 12 sixtieths of a degree from straight overhead at Alexandria, but was nonetheless overhead at Syene, then the angle between of arc between Alexandria and Syene was also 7 degrees and 12 sixtieths. So by measuring the angle of the sun on the day of the summer solstice at Alexandria, knowing that the sun was exactly overhead, exactly shining down this long radial path through the center of the earth at Syene, what, what Eratosthenes did, in effect, was measure the difference in north-south latitude between Syene and Alexandria. That it is 7 degrees and 12 sixtieths a fraction of the complete circle of the Earth. There's your geometric hook. This is what we can use to measure the size of the Earth. All right, so let's review the data. At Syene, the sun is directly overhead and does not cast a shadow. At Alexandria, the sun is not overhead, but it's in fact 7 and 12 sixtieths of a degree southward of overhead, and so it casts a short little shadow. You measure the length of the shadow, you measure the height of the post, at the instant of noon, you close the loop with the geometry, the, the trigonometry, 7 and 12 sixtieths of a degree. Very straightforward calculation. Now, 
Because a full circle is 360 degrees, Eratosthenes knew that he was seeing the fraction of 7 12 sixtieths of, of that circle, full 360 degrees. So he took the size of his arc, 7 and 12 sixtieths of a degree, divided by 360 degrees for the complete circle, and that becomes what fraction of a complete circle is covered in just the arc from Syene to Alexandria. And the answer, if you do this math, turns out to be almost exactly 1 50th of a complete circle. So in order to have the sun go from straight overhead at noon to 7 and 12 sixtieths of a degree off of straight overhead at the exact same time in Alexandria, he had to move 1 50th of the circumference of the earth traversing the arc from Syene to Alexandria. So now he knew the earth was 50 times, the circumference of the earth was 50 times the distance from Alexandria to Syene. Almost there, almost there. How far is it from Alexandria to Syene? Okay, so the circumference of the earth, we now know from geometry, is 50 times larger than the distance from Alexandria, Egypt to Syene, Egypt. How big is that distance? Well, that's easy, that's 5,000 stadia. <laughs> Well, that's good for Eratosthenes, but we're in the 21st century AD. What's a stadia? This one actually was a real problem for archaeologists because, well, it's easy. That's 600 Greek feet. All right. Which city-state has that Greek foot? Whose foot? It turns out a stadia was a foot race, which was 600 Greek feet in length. It was held on a circular track in a place called a... Altogether, a stadium. Hence the name for a place where a foot race is held, a stadium. It's a foot race of 600 Greek feet or one stadium. The best guess that people have today is that one stadion, one stadia plural, is 185 meters. And that's based on a study of the stadium in Athens, the so-called Attic Stadion. There's various arguments on whether you should use the Olympic Stadium, the original foot race track at Olympus, Greece, or some other track somewhere else, maybe Alexandria. But it's pretty well agreed upon that when this measurement was written down by Eratosthenes, he was using the Attic Stadion, which was the standard of unit then. And the best we can reconstruct using what extant archaeological sites there are tells us that one stadium is 185 meters. All right, we're set. Let's do the math. Okay. How big is the Earth? It's 5,000 stadia from Alexandria to Syene. The circumference of the Earth is 50 times larger than that. So 50 times 5,000 stadia tells you the circumference of the Earth is 250,000 stadia. We know that a stadia, stadion, is 185 meters. So I multiply 250,000 stadia by 185 meters per stadion, and I get 46,250 kilometers. So Eratosthenes knew that the Earth was at least 46,250 kilometers in circumference in modern units. How well does he do? The modern value is 40,070 kilometers. He missed it by only 15%. Now, this is almost miraculous, but it makes sense. Number one, Syene's not on the tropics, so the sun doesn't exactly shine overhead. Number two, Exactly one fiftieth of an arc, exactly 5,000 stadia. These numbers are suspiciously well-rounded. It's very likely that Cleomedes 
rounded the numbers up from whatever source he was looking at from Eratosthenes. We don't know if Eratosthenes measured it more precisely than this. But it's still quite remarkable that even with a couple of fudge factors tossed in and some real caveats, using basic geometry, Eratosthenes in the 3rd century BC was able to measure the circumference of the earth without ever leaving Alexandria, or at least having benefit of travelers' tales of the, of the strange occurrence on the noon sun of the solstice, summer solstice in Syene, Egypt, and could get that answer to within 15%. 15% is pretty darn good given how crude the tools were at his disposal. So geometry is extremely powerful. We can use this method to measure the sizes of things without having to tra traverse them. And we're going to see over and over again in different places through this course in Astronomy 162 how geometry can be applied in that way. It's a really important observation. It's just stunning how well he did. Now, it used to be there was a different value of the stadium. If you look through different literature and different books, I think even your book, if you've got it, uses a different value for the number of meters per stadion. Basically, people copy from old textbooks who copy from old textbooks. There was a number that was a different number of stadium, which is not held up by any archaeological evidence, which makes this number come out almost exactly the same as 4070 to make it look even more spectacular. Beware what you read in books. Taint always true. But this one's pretty good. This one I actually did very extensively researched over the years, and I pretty well boiled it down to the best numbers. Is that the only measurement that survives from antiquity? No. A lot of other people did the same measurement. The most, a lot of them probably aren't of interest to us, but one of them is of great interest to us, and that's Claudius Ptolemy. Claudius Ptolemy was the father of modern geography. He was the greatest geometer and, and astronomer of the late classical age in Alexandria, just before Alexandria pretty much became a, an intellectual backwater. It was kind of the last days in the first century AD. He lived in around, around 140 AD. So we're going forward now almost four or five hundred years. Now, he didn't use the same technique as Eratosthenes. He relied upon that observation of Aristotle that as you moved further south, the stars appeared in the southern hemisphere, southern, uh, southern horizon, appeared to rise higher in the sky. For example, if you watch the bright star Spica, which is virtually invisible from high northern latitudes here at 40 degrees, if you go to the island of Rhodes, you can just see Spica just barely coming up over the southern horizon. But if you go further into Egypt, further to the south, Spica will come much higher in the sky. So you measure what is the maximum angle that Spica comes above the ground in the two different places. That difference of angle becomes your difference of latitude, just like Eratosthenes' measurement. And la voila, you get a measurement of the size of the Earth. We know that Ptolemy did not do the observations himself. He relied on a guy by the name of Marinus of Tyre. When all the numbers are crunched, he got a circumference put into modern units of 28,800 kilometers. Here, I'm not going to show you the work. Okay, I'm kind of cheating a bit. But also, remember, this is now the late Roman Empire. We, haven't, we actually have a lot of survivals of measuring machines from the Roman period, so we don't have to go through contortions to convert Roman units into modern units. Now, what's interesting about Ptolemy's number is it's 72% smaller than the correct value of the circumference. It's really small. Basically, his Earth is 72% the actual size of the Earth. Ptolemy's Earth is pretty small. So why am I bothering to tell you it? Ptolemy blew it. He gets a little partial credit because he used the right technique, but his data sucked. Why do we care? Well, we care because Eratosthenes was largely lost. It was only recovered in the late Middle late, late Renaissance. But Ptolemy survived nearly intact through the interruption 
of the fall of the Roman Empire and was transmitted to the West through Arabic sources in the 11th and 12th centuries and became the most quoted authority on astronomy in the Middle Ages. Now, that gets a little ahead of the story. When the Roman Empire fell, a lot of knowledge was lost and forgotten. And around 300 AD, a measure of how much that knowledge was lost was from the fact that a flat earth began to be revived. We see some early Christian writings where they decided to go a little far and wanted to get rid of all these nasty pagan notions, so they threw out the pagan notion of a spherical earth. Saint, Saint, uh, Saint Augustine of Hippo had a great deal of nasty things to say about people who did that because he said they were making the faithful look foolish by stating nonsense when the manifest evidence of the natural world stated quite otherwise. And one should be very careful not to throw the baby out with the pagan bathwater. But this idea held on until about the 14th century AD. It's one of the bad ideas you just can't get unstuck from your fingers. But by 1300, the works of Ptolemy and others began to arrive by way of Islamic Spain. As soon as the works of Aristotle and Ptolemy hit, people repeated the same observations we've just reviewed and said, well, yeah, of course. The Earth is a sphere, and it's approximately so big, 28, 30,000 kilometers in circumference. In fact, no educated person after about the 13th century believed the Earth was flat. So all those statements about them laughing at Columbus, saying the Earth was round, Columbus was a latecomer. But he had something interesting to say. Eratosthenes' method was lost except for obscure mentions, but Ptolemy's was the most influential through this time. This, by making the Earth smaller, makes the western tip of Asia closer to the eastern tip of Europe on a spherical Earth. It was certainly Columbus used Ptolemy's measurement of the size of the Earth and Earth maps based upon that to convince himself that if he went to the Canaries and then sailed west across the great western ocean, that in no time flat he would reach the eastern coast of Asia because Ptolemy's Earth was small enough that that was a rationally traversable distance with the technology of the time. Here's a map of the world from the year 1492 by a German by the name of Martin Beheim. It's dated from the middle of 1492, the very first three-dimensional globe ever made in Europe. It's a very influential map. Here's Europe, Africa, the Indies, China, and Japan. I like to think that this map may have been in the mind of Columbus when on early October morning in 1492, he stood on the deck of three wooden ships that just cleared the edge of the Guadalquivir River in Spain, pointed their prows west, and stood out to sea a half an hour before dawn. In six months, this map wasn't worth the ink it was painted upon. See you all tomorrow.